Welcome back for another week. Perek Zion. Our learning is dedicated to Lilo and Nishmad Rivka Bad Yaakov Alevi, Lucy Maya, and Rina D. Our full year sponsors, Naomi and Yitzi Hollander, complete refuel for all Cholim, Michelle and Gary Friedman, in memory of Hannah Malka Bad David, and refuel Shlema for Rachel, Miral Hinda, Bat Miriam Rivka. Our half year sponsor, refuel Shlema for Menucha Tova, Bat Shoshana, Chava Devora. Our Spotify sponsorship in honor of a Rafua Shlema for all those injured in Eretz Yisrael. And we, we daven for Rafua Shlema for Yedid Yechayim ben Aviv Rivka Chaya, Brach Vigayu Basachal Gita, Tila Batya ben Chaya Tova, Shimon ben Elka, and Shaduchim for all those in need. Okay, this is a upbeat perek. This is actually a really special place. The Jewish people actually are in a good place. Things are going to go well for them, which is amazing because that's not what we're used to. In Shoftim, okay, there was a cycle, but towards the end of the cycle, it seemed that there was much more bad than good. And as Shmuel begins, there's a glimmer of hope. Shmuel is born, but then we lose the Aron and everything that subsequently happens. But it begins to pick up in Parag Hay and Parag Vav with the Aron making its way back to Eretz Yisrael. And the very last pasuk of last week's Parag of Parag Vav was that the people of Beit Shemesh, after losing many people, they are like, we don't want this. So what do they do? They call the people of Kiryat Yarim and they say, the Aaron is with us. Please take it. Now. Right? We want you to take it. And I think the question that we have to try to figure out is, why is it that they send it to Kiryat Yarim? Now, Kiryat Yarim it's not the first time that we've met Kiryat Yarim in our journey together through Tanakh. We saw it in Sefer Yoshua twice. It is a border city between Binyamin and Yehuda. The, the border along the, uh, the lines are kind of jagged and curvy. So there's pieces that go one into another. Uh, you know, a good way to look at it is if you look at the United States, so some of the states out west are perfectly square. Why? Probably because they just took this massive piece of land and they just carved it up. So it's not such a big deal. But some of the original states, if you look at the borders, they're not really so simple. There's a lot of movement along them. So particularly the borders um, between Yehuda and Binyamin, there's many pieces that go up and down. So that's one piece of it. In addition... Kiryat Yarim is one of the cities of the Givonim. In the story of Givon, the people that convert under false pretenses to Judaism, those people are based in Kiryat Yarim. So, okay, Kiryat Yarim is there, and we know about it. So the question is, why do they send it to Kiryat Yarim? Now, a simple answer could be, that they know that it needs to go inward towards the heart of Yehuda, and Beit Shemesh is at the edge of Yehuda, and so they're going to send it upwards. Now, if you're ever driving from Beit Shemesh to Yerushalayim, you'll know that along the one, as you make the turn instead off the 38 on to the one going towards Yerushalayim, there's not a lot going on at the beginning. There's a lot of driving with not much there. Yes, you pass by um, Beit Meir, but Beit Meir is not on the highway itself. You have to get off and drive. Anybody that went to OJ back in the day, 
knows it's not a simple drive. It's a, it's a decent drive when you get off the highway. Um, and yeah, there's Shachagai, there's, there's places. But Kiryat Yarim, which is on the left side, as you're going to Yerushalayim before Mevaseret, is one of the largest places that you'll pass along the way. Biblical Kiryat Yarim um, definitely, you know, was a, was a decent-sized place. But the message is, we don't want the Aron. Please take it from us. So what happens in Parag Zayim Pasuk Aleph? So they they take the Aron and they bring it up to the house of um, Beit Avinadav, the house of Avinadav in Giva. And Elazar, his son, was sanctified or appointed to watch over the Aron Hashem. Now, it is actually really cool that uh, Tel Kiryat Yarin is in an area that was known by the Arabs as uh, something Elazar. Why? Because it's based on this puzzle. So it's interesting. So what happens? So the Aron is in Kiryat Yarim for, 20, for a long time, for 20 years. And all the people, Nahu, Achare Hashem. What does it mean, Vayinahu? Rashi says, Al Yedei Shemuel, based on Shemuel, Shayam Echat Machsir, Meir Leir, Veshoftam Ochicham, Vayinahu Lashonam Shachahava. He pulls them towards God. Why? Through his judging, through going from city to city. We'll see at the end that Shemuel's skill is that he doesn't have home base. Or he doesn't have a real home base. He always comes back to the same place, but he's constantly traveling. He's constantly going from city to city to city. Why? Because that's how he is able to bring the people back. That's the opinion of Rashi. The Radak says, Vayinahu is from crying. They All the people cried and did tshuva shlema to God. And it's it makes it, it makes sense. They they cry, they see the Aaron, they see its holiness, and this is a great sign. And they say Hashem is the Hashem is our God, and they feel bad about the idols that they are worshiping. What's interesting is that this place, Kiryat Yarim, was also known as Kiryat Baal. Why? Because originally it was a house of idol worship. I thought that perhaps you could suggest that this was the perfect place in a place that was converted from a house of worship to a house of God. The people come around in that very place and believe in God. So I want to share with you before we move on any further, just a little bit about Kiryat Yarim. So if you're if you're watching on the screen as opposed to li- just listening, you can see on the left, that is a mountaintop view of Kiryat Yarim, the area of Abu Ghosh. Right dead center, there you see there's a lot of trees, but dead center in the picture, right around where my mouse is hovering, is actually a monastery. The monastery is called um, Mary's House of the Ark, something along those lines. That's that in and of itself should tell you something about the place. 
So what happened was in um in about 2017, um, Professor Israel Finkelstein from Tel Aviv University felt that there was cause to believe that this area was uh, was really the Tel, the ancient Kiryat Yarim. Now he had a problem was, okay, how do you tell the monastery who owns the land, uh, hey, you know, there's a Tel that, that has ancient biblical artifacts maybe on your land, we want to dig here. So he got very lucky. He made a partnership with uh, a university in France. And those, the uh, the professor that was leading the archaeological study and dig from there, approached the nuns and was able to convince them to let them start doing some digging. So they started doing some digging um, in the area that they felt was the right place. How they figured that out, so it's a huge project. They brought in an American team who flew a drone over the, the entire area and in a matter of hours was able to get a perfect topographical view of the entire area. And with that precision, they began to think, okay, we think we know the spot. What's amazing is about 100 years earlier, the land was surveyed. And but I think during maybe World War, I'm not sure exactly, maybe by a German team. And they looked at it and they assumed the same thing. What's interesting is it took them weeks to do what the drone was able to do in just about an hour or two. So afterwards, they started digging and then they found the most fascinating thing. They found this massive wall and they said, OK, that's pretty amazing. Now we have to see, like, what is what is the wall? They couldn't figure it out. They found a connecting wall to it. So they said, okay, now we have two walls. If we have two walls, it would stand to reason that this is something significant, some building structure, but then there should be another wall. The problem was that the wall that they needed to connect it to, the southern wall, was already like encroaching much closer to the monastery. It was in the parking lot. So what are you going to do? They brought an Israeli team in with... um some technology that is able to see what is under the ground. And they figured out that in the parking lot, the third wall was. And they were able to project where the city was and they continued to do digging and they found lots of stuff. Initially, they found stuff that was a thousand years old. They found stuff that was 2000 years old going to the Romans. They found a coin there that goes back to, dates back to the Romans, which is exciting because that's archaeology, certainly not exciting for our Perek. And definitely not exciting for them if they're trying to connect Kiryat Yarim to um, our story. And what they found eventually is they they did find this big structure. They did some digging. You could see some of it on the right. Um, not clear whether you can actually go as a private person to Kiryat Yarim and to see this, but it's definitely what to try to figure out. But in 2018 and again in 2019, they did more digging. And once they dug and found enough stuff, the question was, what was it all? Professor Finkelstein dated it back to Malchus Yisrael, after the times of Shlomo HaMelech, when the kingdom was split. And a little bit farther on, when Malchus Yisrael was very strong, and Malchus Yehuda not. And again, the city was close enough to Menashe that it could have gone back and forth. So, what they found there was that this big structure seems to have been built as a monument. 
a monument by the more powerful and more wealthy kingdom of Israel, attesting to the fact that the Aron was there. Now, even if we can't find testimony that the Aron was there, if in the times post-Shmuel, which is not that, I'm sorry, post-Shlomo, which is not that long after Shmuel, it's 100 years later, 150 years later, if they were building something that was dedicated as a memorial to the fact that the Aron was there, that gives us what to stand on. Now, again, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, I'm happy and comfortable that the Psukim are what they are. But to be able to find a place that seemingly dates back to 150 years after the Aron left there, that has a testimony, a memorial to the Aron being there, that is, to me, walking in the ways of the prophets. Okay? So why do they choose this place? Why do they choose this place? And this, I think, is a really, really important question. Why do they choose this place? So let's take a, a look at our map. This map is very, very helpful for our parak today. It is not meant to be the travels of the Aron, but it actually does work out nicely that it's in Ekron and it makes its way to Beit Shemesh, which is across some Tzara'ah, we know that. And then from there, it goes to where? Kiryat Yarim. Okay, so that is the, the travels of the Aron. Now, why do they choose there? So we, we know that the Pasuk says in the Brachot of Moshe Rabbeinu, Levin Yamin Amar, to Binyamin I say, Yedid Hashem, you are the friend, the beloved of God, Yishkon Mavetach Alav, Yishkon, it will dwell in security by you, Chufef Alav Kol it's by you all day, Uvein Ketefav Shachein, and God says, Uvein, Moshe says, the Brachot is Uvein Ketefav Shachein, you will dwell between the shoulders, right? The neck is between the shoulders. So what, what exactly is going on here? So Kol Ayom says Rashi, Once Yerushalayim was chosen as the house of God, there would never, ever, ever be another place that would take its place. Get Shiloh exists, it's destroyed. Kiryat Yarim exists, it's not. The Mishkan is going to move to Nov, it's going to be destroyed. Once it goes to Yerushalayim, though, it'll never revert back to another place. So says Rashi. In a high place, um, the Beit HaMikdash was built. Not the highest place, Rashi continues. He says it could have been built in Ain Tam near Ephrat, but no, it was built in a place, not the head, but between the shoulders by the neck. Now, did they know this Rashi? No, they didn't know this Rashi. They didn't know where the Beit Tamikdash would ultimately be built. But they knew Venk Tefab Shachin was going to be in a high place of Binyamin. Abu Gosh, Kiryat Yarim, you see it. It's higher than the highway. Says of Amnon Bazak, they knew the Mikdash was headed to Binyamin. And they knew 
that the Mikdash was going to be in a high place. And they assume Kiryat Yarim, which already had been a holy place, it was Kiryat Baal. It would, re- it would change from a place of Avodah Zarah to the place of the Mikdash. They assume that that was the place, and so they send it there. They feel like they're sending the Aron home. I'm coming home. That is how they felt. Now, unfortunately, they're not correct. But in the meantime, the Aron has found a new place. And for 20 years, things are good. Now, Shmuel starts by getting the Jews back to Hashem. But they're still a work in progress. They are still worshipping Avodah Zarah. He has 20 years with the Aron, where the people's level of spirituality is increasing. But he's got more to go. Now, this, this Perek is the only Perek that's dedicated really to Shmuel. Perek Chet, spoiler alert, is where they say, the people say, we want a king. He's then going to ultimately find the king, Shaul. That's going to be Shaul. And then from Shaul, we're going to move into David Melech. This is Shmuel's Perek. What is his goal? His goal, I, I love the picture. I love the picture because the picture basically says what it is. There is that piece missing to get them there. Shmuel is going to work on that in our Perek. Now, the question that one has to ask is, what fills our heart? What, what is our heart full of? Sometimes our heart is full of things that aren't necessarily so good. Today, actually, I went for a walk and... Um, I had a, a thought in my head about something that was bothering me that really is relatively trivial. And the first 10 to 15 minutes of my walk, the thought that was playing in loop in my head was exactly that. And I, I actually took a step back, took a deep breath and said, like, do you really want to spend the next hour? It was an hour and 15 minutes in the end. Do you really want to spend all this time perseverating? And bothering yourself with this. It's just not that important. And I was actually able to take it out. And then I moved on to different thoughts which were more helpful, more pleasant. What fills our heart sometimes is stupidity. And sometimes it's really powerful and important things. Question is, what filled the Jewish people's hearts in our times, in our parak? So the truth is, that Vainahu Hashem. Their hearts were full of Hashem. And yet, at the very same time, their hearts were also full of idols. They had both. And that is very, very tricky. To me, it actually, it, it really, really echoes the story of Eliyahu and Harakarmel. Eliyahu and his great showdown with the false prophets of Baal on, on Hara Carmel, he turns to them and he turns to the Jews and says, Until when are you going to go balance back and forth between the two? <clears throat> if God is in fact the God, then great, then worship him. And if it's idols, then worship them. You can't have it both ways. And I think this is the critical piece. What fills our hearts can be Hashem, and that's amazing. If our f- heart is filled with idols, that's not a good thing. But worse than our heart being filled with idols is our heart being filled with Hashem and idols. It doesn't work that way. 
See, if a person only believes in idols, then I could sit down and I could give them an Eshat Torah seminar. I can give them a good book or two to read and I could I could change their thinking. But if they say, what do you mean? My heart is full. I believe in God. And then idols, something that just doesn't work. So what happens? Shmuel says to the Jewish people, he says, if with your heart, all your heart, right? This, these words, that's that's where we know it from. If your heart is truly with God, hasiru, remove, get rid of the idols, the foreign thoughts that are in them, and the ashtarot, the different types of God and gods, and move your heart towards Hashem and just worship Him. And if you do that, if you do that you will be victorious amongst the Plishtim. The Mitsudas David says, what does it mean that you'll vivduhu levado, worship God by himself, below shituf, without a partnership? It doesn't work that way with God. You're all, either all in on God, or you're all out. If you believe in a shituf, I have a God and I have an idol, it's actually nothing. You don't have anything because the very premise of God is Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. It's one God. There's only one. There can't be a second or a third. That is the opinion of the Mitzudah's David. Das Mikra actually has an interesting idea. He says that we have other places in Tanakh where people say, get rid of your gods. Yaakov said it. In Parshat Vayishlach, Hasirat Elohim Echar, remove the gods after the the battle in Shechem. Yoshua does the same thing also after Shechem. Why? What is it about? There's no in both of those stories. We know that the Jews are holy, worshiping God. They're full. Their hearts are fully in. So why? Why does it have to say that there? Hasiru. So the thought perhaps is like this. Sometimes you pick up a little bit of Avodah Zarah. I believe in God 100%. My heart is full of God. There's no idols in my heart. But there's an Avak Avodah Zarah. There's a little bit. The dustings of it. If you think about it, think about the world we live in today. We live in a world that is not necessarily dedicated to our values. So we shelter ourselves and we shelter our children and we go to yeshivas and we live in orthodox communities and, and we say to ourselves, okay, this is how I am. Okay. But if we look at the things and our values, we'll notice that a lot is really good. Some stuff, we've picked up little pieces. It sticks to us. Tasmikra says perhaps that the people were not, they weren't worshiping idols anymore. But there's a little bit. And Yoshua, and Yoshua has to say, and Yaakov has to say, and now Shmuel has to say to them, to get to where we need to be, Asiru, you have to get rid of it. There can't be anything at all, anything at all 
in there that connects to idols. So Pasuk Hey. And they do that. They actually do it. They follow what God wants. They follow what Shmuel asks for them. It's amazing. The thing is, they did this from a place where there's no threat. There's no existential threat to their existence. They're living with the plishtim on top of them. But okay, we don't we don't believe in God in our idols anymore. We get rid of it. Fine. Question is, what will happen if there's a tough time? Are they going to run back to their idols, or will they still be with God? Pasukhei vayomer Shmuel. Shmuel says kivtsu ekol yisal hamitzpah. So Shmuel says, I want all the Jews to come to mitzpah. Where is mitzpah? If you take a look on the map, the map has two possible mitzpahs. One of them is closer to Kiryat Yarim not far from Giva, which is nowadays the outskirts of Yerushalayim as you're leaving uh, towards Malea Dumim. So they all gather in Mitzpah, and I'm going to pray for you there to God. They come to Mitzpah, and they draw water, and they pour it out before God. What in the world are they doing? Now, we actually do have a service like this. On Sukkot, we have the Niso Chamayim. It's where we take the water and we bring a water libation in, on the Mizbeach to God. Now, it's interesting that it's connected to Chag Sukkot. Let's hold that for a second. And let's take a look at two different possible answers of Vayishavu Mayim. Rashi says Vayishavu Mayim. It's a sign of humility. It is pouring one's heart out. That is the idea behind Vaishbuchu Amayim. So and Vaishavu Amayim says the Radak. It's like they're pouring their hearts out for kapara, for tshuva. It's tefillah. It's tshuva. Says Rav Yigal. Rav Yigal Ariel. It was worth preparing this entire shir for this new thought that I saw from Rav Yigal today. Rav Yigal says the following. He says, why water? Water is not often what you put on the Mizbeach. You know you put on the Mizbeach a lot? If you want a liquid, you have like the sprinkling of the blood and the and the pouring of the wine. Why water? So it says water is totally natural. It's completely from, it's completely, there's nothing in it. Wine, what happens? I take the grapes. I, I do different things. I ferment it. There's there's a process, a human process in it. Water is not. It's water is pure. Says Rivigal Ario, the message that they're doing by pouring out this water is saying, Hashem, it's all from you. I, I acknowledge that. It's an amazing idea. And I think that that is probably the reason why Nisuchamayim is dafka when 
by on the holiday of Sukkot. Why? Because what is that holiday all about? The holiday is all about the fact that I go outside of my house. Yes, the Seder is that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. That's a big deal. But I do it from the comfort of my home with my door closed. Okay, maybe locked, maybe not locked, depending on you know how Lel Shimurim you want to be in your house. But I go out into my sukkah. Yeah, nowadays we feel safer maybe, but you're going out, you're exposing yourselves to the elements. Why? Because I am acknowledging that Hashem's got it all. Hashem's watching over me. Hashem's taking care of it. And that is what they needed to do. It's beautiful. When they fast on that day, the Malbim says, because fasting is, what are you supposed to do on a fast? It's introspection. What did I do wrong? What can I do better? They say we sin to God. And Shmuel judged the people in Mitzvah. What does it mean to judge? Judge could be like literally judging. I sit there and I adjudicate between people. This person says, I owe. This person says, I don't know. And the judge comes along and does that. Another possibility is that a judge is there to, uh, to to possibly punish the people. You did something wrong, you get punished. A judge is also there to teach the people. And the last possibility is a judge is there to lead the people in battle. Now, right now, there is no battle, but we know from our story that the Plishtim have encroached on the Jewish people. They've come much Further in, this area on the map of, of almost Kiryat Yarim, these areas are possibly run by the Plishtim or very close to it. So what happens? The Plishtim here that the Jews have what? They've gathered in mitzvah. There's a lot. All the Jews are there. Vayalu, Sarnei Plishtim al-Yisel, Vayishmu B'nei Yisel, so what happens? The Plishtim are see that they see this, and uh, and they they come up, they come out in battle, and the Jews hear this and they're terrified. What in the world is going on here? Says the Abar Benel, why did the Plishtim come there? So he says, Yidmesh, are you Plishtim Yodim They knew that Mitzvah is a holy place. And when they gather there together in a holy place, like in the times of Yoshua, like in the times of Yivtach, they win. They got upset that the Jews were collecting in Mitzvah. And immediately they come out to war. And the Jews are afraid. I would take the Abar Benel one step further. It's not only that's a holy place. But when the Jews gather together, the Cholivavchem, not only spiritually with all their hearts, but when they sit there, arm in arm, and say, you are my brother, Ain Mishayacholamot. Nobody can stand there. So the Plishim said, we got to do something. We have to, we have to stop it. 
You come marching with the entire Plishti army there and you scare the Jews enough, there is the possibility that the Jews will scatter or that the Jews will begin to fight with each other. Maybe that's what's going on here. Rebezak offers a different explanation. He says, perhaps the test of the gathering is that it's going to rattle the Plishtim. They're going to get scared, the Plishtim. And they're going to come and attack. And the question is, what will the Jewish reaction be when that happens? Will the Jews get scared and flee? Or will the Jews say, no, we only worship God? Listen to what B'nai Yisrael say. And this Pasuk is probably, probably the most critical Pasuk in the entire Perek. Because this Pasuk is the reversal of Perek Dalid. Perek Dalid, when they lose the war, when they see the Plishtim coming, what do they say? What are we supposed to do? Go get the Arum. Do not silence us. To cry out. To daven. To God. And God will save us from the Plishtim. That is a grand slam. That is where the Jewish people have done tshuva. They have come completely around. What does Shmuel do? He takes a, <clears throat> a young goat, young sheep, that is still nursing. He brings it up whole to God a Korban Ola. And Shmuel cries out to God. And Hashem answers him. Abar Benel says, what's going on here? What is he doing? He's davening to Hashem. Why? He brings the Korban because he hopes that by bringing the Korban, it will grant him Nevua and God will tell him what to do. He brings the Israel, he brings the carbon, and the Plishtim come to war. And what does Hashem do? Hashem makes loud noises. And what happens? It confuses the Plishtim, and the Jews decimate the Plishtim. These words, Ram, Hamam, Magifa, are what? They're words that we had back in Perek Dalid. Except now the shoe is on the other foot. So what happens? They chase after the Plishtim and they, they, they route them all the way to Beit Kar. Now where is Beit Kar? So one possibility, most of the Mepharshim seems to say Beit Kar is is it's Beit Sharon, this area of the Sharon. I'm not exactly sure where that is. I know that in the Yom Kippur Amida, in the Avodat Yom Kippurim, there is the Anchea Sharon. And what did they daven? They daven that on the way back, it wouldn't, it, you know, they daven for their Parnas and whatever, the Anche Sharon are there. I'm not sure exactly where that is. But there is another possibility. It's a possibility suggested by the Dat Mikra, where he says that maybe Beit Kar is up by Mevocharon. If you remember from the battle of Kiryat Yarim by the Giva, by, by uh, not the Giva, by Givon. So what happens? They are, they are, sorry, I lost, I went ahead. They are by Kiryat Yarim. They go up 
towards Modi'in and they come around by Shalavim. He says that area is perhaps where they went to, which makes sense because that is the area that would lead them directly to Shiloh. And so maybe that's where they go to. What happens next? He takes a rock, a stone, and he places it between Mitzpah and Shane, which is, and then he calls voice Evan Ha'ezer, the stone of helping. He says, until here, God has saved us. Now, maybe, maybe you also remember that Evan Ha'ezer is the place that we know. Evan Ezer is the Jewish camp in Paragdalid. They're in Evan Ezer, and the Plishtim are in Afeik. That's much more north. This is by Mitzpah, which is down, down by more on the Yerushalayim level, not on the Shiloh level. So he names the place Evan Ezer. Why? Why does he do that? Perhaps, perhaps what he's trying to do here is he's trying to say, hello. This is it. We have reversed that which went wrong. We have undid everything that we messed up with when? In Paragdalit. In round one with the Plishtim. The Dat Mikra says that why does he take a stone? They didn't make statues the way we have now monuments. You have a big George Washington, a big Abe Lincoln, or, you know, whatever it is, a guy in a horse. It's nice, nice statues, nice monuments. They made stones. But the stone was in a place, the people knew the place, and they said, ah, why this miracle happened in this place? So Shmuel does the same thing. He doesn't make a big building. There's one big stone, and that big stone is supposed to be a remembrance. That big stone is supposed to be a reminder. We won the war. God helped us, and a miracle happened. Shmuel holds the plishtim at bay for the entire time that he is the Shofet, the leader of the Jewish people. It continues by telling us in Pasuk Yudalit, So what happens? They get back these areas, Ekron, Gat, and all the areas around it. That Mikra says maybe it's not really Gat, maybe it is another place that has a similar name. And his thinking is, that it's more in the area of the battle that they won than in the than all the way over by the coast. Now, I'll leave you with this to think about. I'm not going to share with you because there's not enough time. But if you look through these psukim, you'll notice that there's language that's similar to Moshe at Yitziat Mitzrayim. Vayomahu, Shafat, Vayuhunim. What is the connection between Shmuel and Moshe. And we know Moshe we say it every Friday night in Tehillim and Kabbalat Shabbat. What's the deal with it? I leave that for you to think about. And perhaps when we get to Perak Zion in three years from now, again, we'll spend more time on that. So let us, let us continue with Pasuk Tedvav. 
by Shpot Shmuel at Yisrael Kol Yimei Chayav, Shmuel judged the Jewish people all the days of his life. The halach, pasuk tetzayin, halach midei shana shana. Each year he would go with savah beitel vagilgal vamitzpa. He would go from beitel gilgal mitzpa areas rich in Jews, not with rich Jews, rich in Jews. Veshafat yisrael komakomot elan. He would judge the people there. The greatness of Yoshua of Shmuel is that he he doesn't judge them. From his home. So he goes to the people and he checks on them and he watches them and he sees what do they need. He tends to them that way. He's constantly going to them. Why? Because that's how you are able to make changes in people. In case you want to see what a Mizbeach might have looked like, um, because he uh he builds himself a Mizbeach as well. Sorry, He would always come back though to Ramah. That was his home place. And there he built a Mizbeach to Hashem. They actually found the Mizbeach when they were digging in Be'er Sheva. And there's a picture on the screen of what that looked like. Says that Mikra, He always came back to Ramah. That's where Elkanah, his father, his mother, Hannah, were from, he would always come back there. But the key piece is that he went from place to place to place to place to place, teaching, inspiring, hoping to change the people and where their head was at. I want to share with you a closing thought. I think it is a absolutely beautiful idea. Yigal really, really shared some amazing thoughts but the, the story of the Jewish people is the story of rising from the ashes. We fall. We're in a bad place. And what happens? Says Ravigal, Hamishkan Yitesh. The Mishkan was destroyed. Eli mate. Eli dies. Hakol Shakavacharev. And everything was destroyed and ruined. And from the destruction, he starts again. The people, they, they were quiet. Nothing was happening. So you know what happens? He goes from place to place. In destruction, people say, I don't want to go. I'm not interested in learning. God will come to me eventually. Shmuel says, no, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to teach you. Listen to what is written here. It's a beautiful, beautiful medrash. The people, the leaders of the times of the Shoftim, they had this like chain on their neck. They have to go from city to city. They had to go to all the different places. That was what they were obligated to do. They felt that it was a burden. They would go and teach everybody how great God was. You know, 
Everyone would say, I'm fine. You come to me. Because the job was just too hard. And they just weren't interested. Shmuel, what does he do? Shmuel says, no, I will go to the people. The people don't have to come to me. As a leader, going to the people is actually much nicer because sometimes the people say, I'm really, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable asking this question. But if the leader knocks on your door and says, no, how can I help you? You will be willing to come. You'll be willing to talk. You'll be willing to answer. What Shmuel does so beautifully is he rebuilds the people. How does he rebuild the people? He goes to them. He travels. And it's hard work. He could sit in Ramah, which is a beautiful area, and say, you know what? It is all good. But he refuses to do that. He says, I won't do that. I am not going to do that. I will end with one last thought. And that is the similarities between Perek Perek Dalit and Perek Zion are just so strong. And and that's why at Anitzachon, the end of the the, the paragraph, after the comparisons of the lines, at Anitzachon, Mitzayin, Shmuel, Batzavet, Eben, Vayukrat, Shema, Eben HaEzer, Vayomar, Adheina, Azareinu Hashem, Shama, Hizal, Hashem, Akum, Pala, he names it after the place that they lost, Behein, Chrosetoshul, Adheina, Romzim, Ulai, the Rayon, Amok, Adheina, Azaruna, Hashem, Lorak, Bishar, Yeshua, Bilvad, it's not only, when we say ad heina, it doesn't mean that only in our victory. Everything, all the bad, all the bad things that have happened to get us to this point is that's part of ad heina. Until a God has been with us, helping us, we don't understand it. But it was for the best. We what does he say? Only because the Jews had fallen so badly, only because the Plishim had taken over so much, could he bring the Jews back to where they were? Even the suffering. Even the pain, even the tragedy. All of it. All the suffering. Every single thing that the Jewish people go through. It is all adhena. God is with us every, every step along the way. We are constantly rising from the ashes. That is the story the Jewish people. May it be his will that from the ashes and from the suffering and from the pain that we saw and unfortunately we continue to see, from that pain and that suffering, one day really soon we'll be able to see, say, Adhena, Azrenu. From there, 
all the way to here, God has helped us. We should be able to say that. I would even take it one step further. In Yerts Hashem, we should have the opportunity to rename the places that we lost, the places that we were pained and suffered in. We should name them as the place of victory. Thank you again for joining us. Have a wonderful week and keep walking in the ways of the prophets.